Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. This week, Rachel Mann is in conversation with Francis Spufford about his eagerly anticipated second novel, Light Perpetual, published by Faber and Faber. It's available from the Church Times bookshop for the discounted price of £15.29. The conversation was recorded last Saturday at a one-day online event organised by the Church Times Festival of Faith and Literature. As well as talking about the novel, Francis also answered questions from viewers on subjects including doubt, heaven, and whether as a writer he sees God as a great explosion of words. If you missed the live event, you can buy access to a video recording at faithandliterature.hymnsam.co.uk. And the third annual Theology Slam final takes place on Thursday the 18th of March at 7pm. It's organised by the Church Times, SCM Press and the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. The finalists will speak on justice, creativity and community in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. To watch a video of the three finalists introducing themselves, go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash video. And to buy tickets for the live final itself, visit churchtimes.co.uk forward slash events where you'll find a link. I have to say that it is an immense privilege and rather an intimidating privilege to be able to be in conversation now with Francis Spufford. Uh, Francis is one of those rarest of things, a Christian, a person of faith, who can genuinely speak into uh, the public square and into a world which is seemingly very far removed from faith. And he can do that in such a way that he can talk about faith and life and ideas. He's a writer whose career began in non-fiction. His non-fiction writing, well, goodness me, it is uh, an absolutely luminous list of achievements. His non-fiction writing has won the Somerset Morm Award and has also been long-listed for the Orwell. And he arrived at fiction at a reasonably grand age uh, of 52, And his debut novel, Golden Hill, set in 18th century New York, was, well, there's only one way we can describe this, a literary blockbuster, a literary bestseller. And it won the Costa First Novel Prize and the Michael Onjati Prize as well. And that is before we talk about uh, that other remarkable achievement of his, his book on apologetic, his account of the emotional plausibilities of faith, the way in which he defends faith in an age which is so suspicious of faith without resorting to um, empty and shallow argument but by reminding us of how, despite everything, it remains an incredibly potent force and reality in so many of our lives. And that book was shortlisted for the Michael Ramsey Prize. Uh, Dare I say it? Um, I think it perhaps 
might have won if not for its its rather rich and fruity use use of of some of the 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 better and more striking uh words in the english language i i have this feeling that some of those people who were judging that panel that year blanched when they thought about awarding the prize to such a book that was frankly so honest and so real about the realities of being a human being and a person of faith and he is here today to talk about his new novel light perpetual um which is just published so francis welcome gosh you're looking resplendent uh, I, my age has only got grander witness the, the enormous unruly lockdown beard for which i i i apologize um no barber well, and and um, the best i can do is to kind of clap a hat on the top and hope that it, it looks you know something well it, it makes you look like a 19th century sage um, I don't mind that. Um, I don't mind that, but I, I have no smoking jacket and no plans ever to get a smoking jacket. That would be a bit much, I think. Well, I, I, I think I can dig one out for you, should you Thank wish you. to have one. Well, look, it is an absolute privilege to have someone um, of your stature joining us here today. And I'm rather intimidated by being your conversation. Ah, yeah. sure up. He said, uh, so know. over to look, uh, Francis, um, we want to give you plenty of time to be able to introduce the novel, which will be fresh to so many of our audience today as it is so recently published. So it would be wonderful for you to give a, I suppose, your your elevator pitch, as it were, a, a flavour of what your novel's about and then to hear you read. So over to you, Francis. Thank you. Thank you. Um, the origin point of 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 this novel, Light Perpetual, which has indeed only been out for a fortnight at this point, um, was uh, the endlessly repeated experience of, of walking to my teaching job at Goldsmiths College in South London past a very ordinary looking 1950s brick branch of Iceland, um, which has got an extremely small discreet plaque on it, mostly hidden by a CCTV camera, this being South London, um, which which memorializes the 168 people killed when a V2 German rocket fell onto a branch of Woolworths that was standing on that corner in November 1944. Um, single largest loss of life in in this country from a from a V2, and and you know characteristic of the the way that London folds its history away in in plain sight. Um, an enormous tragedy, which is now part of the the ordinary fabric of a, of a South London shopping street. And I've been looking at this plaque and being particularly haunted by the thought of the 15 children under 11 who were among the dead because it was a Saturday lunchtime and there had just been the first delivery of new saucepans in years and a great many mothers took their under school age children along to try and get hold of a pan and um and they died in a in a, a, a tiny fraction of a of a second and did not get to 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 live to see the 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 rest of of the 20th century in london and the extraordinary changes that the city has been through since then so I wanted to write a book which, well, which did several things at the same time, which um, which performed a kind of ambiguous literary resurrection um, just by waving the hand of fiction over it, not over those literal children's lives, because those are those are real people 
whose families are still around, still being remembered, and in some cases still mourned. So I invented an imaginary London borough very near New Cross um, and some completely imaginary children. But I wanted to to use the the kind of counterfactual power of fiction to 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 bring them back and and show just how much was was lost in that that tragic split second. But I also wanted to to do something more complicated involving the relationship of time to eternity. I wanted to write about a piece of a piece of time, the time of these children's lives in a way which kept you aware in some way of the of the kind of background of of eternity that time is happening against. You could see this as the background of death time is happening against, but but if you are a person of faith, then then what time goes with is eternity. And and as Blake said, um, eternity is in love with the productions of time. And and what we see passing mortal, precious, brief is something that God values because it is those things. I think of C.S. Lewis saying um, that God approves of matter. He invented it. And the same thing applies to to time. Um, and without committing the terrible and you know creatively impossible blasphemy of trying to see the world from a God's eye view, there is no such thing except for God. Um, I wanted to I wanted to do something a little strange. That, st that took us half a step out of our ordinary experience of time, reminded us of how, of how odd time is when we come to think of it. As St. Augustine said, I know exactly what time is until anyone asks me. Um, I wanted the kind of the, 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 the strange fabric of time in, in which we live to become apparent, palpable in a, in a, in a piece of fiction. And I wanted to pitch the fiction in between death and resurrection so that it can end on note, which if you are a person of faith is is the sound of eternity consummating its love for the for the productions of time. And if you aren't a person of faith is is just a, a kind of an elegy for 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 mortal us for what um, Philip Larkin, a great fearer of death and sometimes celebrator of life called the million petaled flower of being here. The trouble is that all of this sounds extremely grand and the lives in question are, are five working class lives in South London during a time of enormous social mobility and sudden cultural change. There's a lot to talk about but but I didn't want to do something highfalutin. I didn't want to do something where where the architecture of the book made it seem as if the lives in question had to be exceptional ones because the whole point about eternity is it's the backing for for all of time the whole point about the city of god is that is that every human city is a suburb of it every south london borough um probably not the imaginary ones is a is a is a is an outlying is an outlying suburb of, of the city of god so it's not that I wanted remarkable and exceptional lives, except that all lives are remarkable and exceptional if you look at them close up. I wanted I wanted lives that 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 lay bare the range of ordinary human experience and its richness and its pity and its terror and its humor 
um, and then carry us in the end towards well towards towards something towards towards death since we're mortal creatures but possibly towards um towards life as well um i will i will read a bit i will read the i will read the last bit of the book um of the five characters this is this is ben who was once a bus conductor um and a kind of holy fool in the book someone who who lived in a, a terrible state of of mental torment he never described to anyone for a long time and then found his way towards something redemptive something something as blissful as the previous thing had been had been hellish um because he he lucked into a late marriage to a nigerian widow who ran a coffee shop um who um among other things took him off to her Pentecostal church. And one of the following factors saved him, um, either being rid of an evil spirit. No, it isn't either, it's an and. Being rid of an evil spirit, um, the generation of, of antipsychotic drugs that came along in the 1990s, the love of a good woman, um, being being given enough to do so that he, he, could, be, he could be peaceful inside his mind. Um, and um yeah the redeeming love of god possibly um let's not rule that out um but this is this is ben at the very end of his life um in a hospice bed dying because the happy ending that these children get is that they get to live a long life many decades long and then die in this case die surrounded by love Ben's room in the hospice has a window onto a small court of straggly grass. Two-storey brick walls surround it, and the sun only shines directly down into it in the middle of the day. Otherwise, it is a shady place with a neglected square green pool and a twisting, stumpy sculpture gone to moss. But out of sight of Ben, there must be a path into the courtyard and therefore a, a chink at the corner of the enclosing walls, because sometimes the early light comes raying briefly from the right, low and level. It is doing it now, and the grass has dew on it. All along the line of the sun, a brilliant sea of tiny beads, a million filaments trembling with light. People say the world gets smaller when you're dying, but there it still is, as astonishingly much of it as ever. It's you who shrinks, or you who can grasp the world less, who can take hold of less and less of it, until you're only peeping at one burning bright corner of the whole immense fabric. And then not even that. Under the sheet, a tube goes into his arm, and a little pump sends morphine down it automatically. He can press a button for more if the pain gets too much. It doesn't mostly, but time blurs and moves in jumps. People come and are suddenly gone. He blinks and night has become day or day become night. He loses the thread in the middle of talking and then searching for the next words finds that he has left the conversation far behind hours or days ago. He pursues his thoughts slowly across great discontinuities like someone chasing a bead of mercury that constantly tries to split and roll away. Marsha and Ruthie and Curtis and Cleve and Grace and Addie are just putting their coats on to go. A nurse feeds him a mouthful of Fortisip 
and suddenly they're gone. Is that the MP? says the nurse. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, says Ben, swallowing is difficult. Yes, yes it is. Addie Ojo, Member of Parliament for Bexford, herself and in the flesh. And are they all your children? says the nurse, a slight but polite doubt in her voice for obvious reasons. I, none of them, says Ben. All of them, he adds. But did he manage to say that part out loud? Suddenly it's night. Sometimes he's frightened. Sometimes everything seems to be shaking to pieces, idea from idea, bone from bone, matter, all flying apart into a broken heap. And then he thinks he can hear a huge sound, a rattling, rolling crash. He has somehow been living inside. He tries to put his thoughts in order, but the mercury runs this way and that. The different parts of his life, how they seem not to fit together, but he is sure really do, really did. How he went round and round in Bexford, one life and then another, different one, in the same places. The buses, then the cafe, the horror and then the joy, his sister and then Marsha, always on the same streets, only not in a circle, more like round and round in a spiral, rising in place, because didn't he, in the end, prove to be going somewhere? Oddly, after all the years when happiness meant not being able to remember what the fear was like, he can now call it to mind again easily, but without being afraid. The crystal floor to his mind is gone, but it's all right. He sees the fearful years alongside the good ones, taking their place in the spiral. An idea is in his head, the mercury consenting to be chased slowly to a standstill. Who knows if it's true? But if the different bits and pieces of his life rising, lofted as if by a bubble of force from below and arranged in a messy spiral of hours and years, then then mightn't it be the case? Mightn't there be a, a place? Mightn't there be an, an angle from which you could see the whole accidental mass composing just from that angle into some momentary order you could never have noticed at the time? Mightn't there be a line of sight, not ours, from which the seeming cloud of debris of our days, no more in order than, say, the shredded particles riding the wave front of an explosion, prove to a line into a clock face of transparencies. This whole mess, a rose, a window. It is morning. It is night. It is morning. Ben, says Marsha, holding his left hand. Grandpa Ben says Ruthie, holding his right hand, but not as if they expect an answer. Olorun adifune, says Marsha, her lips on his forehead. Praise him in all the postcodes, thinks Ben. Praise him on the commuter trains. Praise him upon the drum and bass. Praise him at the Ritz. Praise him in the piss-stained doorways. Praise him in nail bars. Praise him with beard oil. Praise him in toddler groups. Praise him at food banks. Praise him in the parks and playgrounds. Praise him down in the tube station at midnight. Praise him with doner kebabs. Praise him with Michelin stars. Praise him on pirate radio. Praise him on LBC and Capital. Praise him at Broadcasting House. 
Praise him at Poundland. Praise him at Harvey Nichols. Praise him among the trafficked and exploited. Praise him in hipster coffee houses. Praise him in the industrial estates. Praise him in leather bars. Praise him on the dance floors. Praise him on the sick beds. Praise him in the High Court of Parliament. Praise him in the prisons and crack houses. Praise him at Pride. Praise him at Carnival. Praise him at Millwall and West Ham, Arsenal and Chelsea and Spurs. Praise him at Eid. Praise him at High Mass. Praise him on Shabbat. Praise him in the gospel choirs. Praise him, all who hope. Praise him, all who fear. Praise him, all who dream. Praise him, all who remember. Praise him in trouble. Praise him in joy. Let everything that hath breath give praise. The sun is overhead. The sun is shining straight down. The grass grows bright with ordinary light. Ben sees the light, and the light is very good. Oh, gosh. I actually, Francis, I, I almost want to say let's take a beat. Um, unfortunately, time yeah, I know. <laughs> moves. Francis, that really was an extraordinary reading, an extraordinary moment um, from the novel. And I really wasn't going to start here. I wasn't going to start Sorry. here. No, 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 no. But it's just, no, because you've moved me so much. And it's about praise. There is That is a kind of generous, gracious praise hymn that you offer at the end of the novel. And, um, and it seems to me that so often, certainly in church settings, praise gets so constricted and constrained. And I'm just wondering, what is it, what is it about the possibility of, of the novel? What is it about you that just wants to shatter that? I think if there's a, if there's a carryover from what I was doing in, in, unapologetic a few years ago into 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 what I'm doing in fiction here with this one it's a it's a sense that um that there's a kind of really serious category mistake in thinking that that praise should be confined to to some kind of narrow little domain of of of, of dignified and churchy emotions that um the, I, I don't think it's a mistake that gets made within churches that much but it's a mistake that's frequently made from outside looking in it assumes that 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 we are the 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 kind of the brigade of niceness and 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 politeness and that the prettiness of churches suggests that we're only open to some narrow and polite and decorated band of human experience whereas actually the the the, the impulse to praise just look at the bloody psalms is rooted in 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 an enormously wide and rich and sometimes terrible um kind of width of 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 human experience it's not i mean it's polite among other things but it's not polite in total on the contrary praise is a is a is even more unruly than my beard at present praise <laughs> is, is um the the impulse to praise springs out of the the worst and the best and the and the boring Wednesday mornings in between of 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 human experience and that seems to me that's something that fiction can can fiction can get to 
Yes, absolutely. And uh, I'm now going to draw on something that, that Mark spoke about in in the last session. I, I think he quoted Evelyn Underhill about the Church of England being this sort of polite suburb of the city of God. Um, uh, cl clearly, Bexford, your fictional borough, is not a polite suburb. But I was really struck by your sense that, that all cities, all boroughs, all places are part of the of the city of God. And it strikes me that uh, you, you have these, these five working class kids who grow up, but there's a sixth character in this novel and it's London and it's the borough of Bexford itself. Yeah. Can you just tell us more about how, uh, you know, what, what kind of suburb of the city of God is it? it um, well, of course, it's it's London as I've known it, and since nobody ever lives in all of London, but only ever in their their, their chosen quadrant of which they are a local patriot. I've always, when I've been a Londoner, I've always been a South Londoner. First on Brixton Hill, and then on the kind of borderline between um, Camberwell and 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 Peckham. So, so my sense of what London is 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 heavily local. It's that rising ridge at the south side of the of the Thames Basin, which is covered in trees and which was once grand in an early in a late 18th century early 19th century way when when people were, were were getting out of the city to to spend their packet on a nice big house on that ridge but which then went into kind of owner occupation and uh, they're, they're not exactly not owner occupation into 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 kind of subdivided multiple occupation and sort of rachmanite rachmanite landlords and and was very run down indeed by the middle of the 20th century and which is also um, one of the places most changed and in, enriched by by inflows of kind of 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 new and and changing populations over the twentieth century. So 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 Brixton becomes kind of the capital of the capital of of Black London. Um, arguably, I am a South Londoner. I'm going to I'm going to argue it um, because the London Borough of Lambeth happens to 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 be good to the the first the first wave of, of West Indian arrivals and it, it becomes a place that you can imagine a home in um whose home South London is changes and keeps changing which is one of the things that's so powerful about it but it's not pretty the trees are good um <laughs> the trees are good but we don't have the underground in South London we're used to to nasty remarks about not going south of the river um and it's absolutely filled with with mysterious off licenses with very few bottles in them and fried chicken shops which aren't quite Kentucky fried chicken but have a name that's a bit like it and they've only got one branch things called sort of Tennessee roasted chicken <laughs> um, um so it's a suburb of the city of god with with discarded fast food wrappers blowing about on the pavements um <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, we're going to bring in some questions just in a moment. I have one more, and then okay. then we'll we'll open it out. And I think it's uh, it's coming back to the way in which the story is is framed. It's framed in terms of a V two attack, which kills over one hundred and sixty people. And you know, you offer five of them, five fictional um, members of that that cohort of death, as it were, an an afterlife, yeah. as it were, and. And I'm just wondering, is that is that the most we we can offer in terms of afterlife? Is, is this the, you know, um, for novelists to provide them? Um, um, I mean, is this the best of religion, actually? 
all that fiction can do, but it's quite a lot, is is to provide some sort of imaginative purchase on what we hope that the Holy Spirit can do. I mean, there's a limit to what I can do. I'm making things up here. But but you know, one hopes there's not a limit to what to what the Holy Spirit can can do. Um I can I can reflect what I hope is a faint remote partial glimpse of a kind of rose window of divine action which is which is going on with far more resources than me making stuff up um <laughs> no that's that's it's that's absolutely fair enough uh, we're going to take a question from Alison Breeden now and she says your opening dissects time down to tiny segments the lists slow down the experience of reading, for example, the lists of people in a crowd. What, what books do you devour quickly, slowly? How should we read? And, and dare I ask you to just say a little bit about what is, for me, one of the most bravura openings of a novel I've ever read. The, the, the opening happens in, in extreme slow motion um, as a way of getting into the strangeness of time and the strangeness of 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 again, a real physical event that happens so click quickly that it's it's completely below the threshold of, of of human perception and yet is is decisive because it because it 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 kills these people it's a piece of real cause and effect happening off the scale at which human beings can can perceive can perceive time which struck me as both something that the that the that the kind of microscopic powers of of fiction to slow time could 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 get us a little bit inside and something which could show us in a way how limited and arbitrary the the, the window through which we ordinarily see time is our music as human beings only makes sense because we operate at a certain number of of beats per minute were we oak trees our songs would 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 last for hours just to get the just to get the rhythm going were we mayflies they'd be they'd be they'd be they'd be over in a in an instant um but time exists on all its scales and an extreme kind of clinical slowness seemed to me to be a way to to, to, to start the strangeness of, of a V2 missile appearing among the knitting patterns and saucepans of a branch of Woolworths, because in order for the for the thing to go off, there had to be a moment when 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 the shoppers were standing here and the missile was appearing over there, having come through the ceiling, sharp point first. And that's a real instant, only a ten thousandth of a second long, but it it really happened and under something like the eye of eternity that kind of moment is held as firmly as time on the scale we're used to seeing it at the rest of the novel i'm glad to say runs at something more like human time except that it jumps onwards in 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 15 year intervals because i wanted to get the long rhythms of a life as well as the as well as the extremely short ones and i wanted to keep reminding us of 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 scale by by jumping between between scales the last novel i wrote golden hill was on purpose a novel that ran extremely fast it it, it was like a kind of little clockwork 18th century man in a little tin wig and i wound up the key in his back and then i set him scooting across the the tabletop very very fast having a ridiculous number of of events <laughs> happened to him and this one 
is in some ways a much, much slower book, but but it's also, I hope, a book that that looks at the mixture of rates at which things happen to us. So so it's got very slow passages and it's 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 it it tries it it was a point of honor to try and describe work, which is so much of people's usual experience of time and usually doesn't get much of a look in 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 fiction. And I wanted to do the way that happiness rushes past and the way that some kinds of misery stick you in an endlessly repeating, terrifying, hellish loop. Um, so I wanted it to have kind of multiple paces in it, kind of hugely overlaid different kinds of rhythm, which with any luck add up to, to something coherent. In terms of reading, um, I also like books that go at wildly, at wildly different speeds. Um, I like, and I, I, Mm. I'm married to somebody who is a genuinely very fast reader and who likes Victorian novels because they will last her a whole day. <laughs> and, and Middlemarch does not last me a whole day. It lasts me a whole week. Um, Amen. And there are there and, and, and very marvelous, a very marvelous week it makes too. Thank you. Thank yes. you, George Lewis. But um I, I so I, I I love the kind of the kind of book where where I can read 20 pages and then my brain is full. And it I mean Marilyn Robinson, for example. I've just read the newest Marilyn Robinson, Jack. Um, 20 pages a day. Um, and and my mind was completely full and even straining slightly by the time I got to the, the 20th of the daily pages. Um at the same time, I also love books that go down so fast they scarcely they scarcely touch the sides. And I got a very, very good lead to um oddly the 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 romances for grown-ups written by the children's writer Eva Ibbotson. Um somebody said these are ideal pandemic reading and i can confirm that they are ideal pandemic reading um they they are completely delightful very funny beautifully observed kind of um sort of 20th century jane austens with with refugees with great hair and tongues firmly in their cheeks and and a completely ruthless plotting and those those take about an hour and 40 minutes and and <laughs> too. Splendid, splendid. Um, let's let's take another question. Uh, this is from Sarah J. One of the things I love in your writing is how you seem comfortable with doubt as an experience. Should the church get more comfortable with giving people space to explore and doubt? Um, thank you, and yes, but let me enlarge slightly on the on the yes there because um, how the church gives space to people with doubt seems to me to be very important. Um, not a priest, not in charge of anything, thankfully, um, but this allows me to make irresponsible suggestions. Um, many of the ways in which the Church of England has tried to build a bridge for doubt has had the unwanted effect of, of making everything look less certain, less plausible and 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 less inviting. There's no point in meeting doubt halfway by generating doubt about about your own creed. The doubtful thing is not what Christianity what Christianity's got in it over there. The the doubt is about whether individuals can assent to it and whether it whether it makes sense to them. Um, but I think you respect doubt and make a place for it by by offering something firmly and sort of poetically provoking and then by not hassling people about it you you offer them a piece of 
of liturgy which is which is rich and deep and has room in it for whatever people bring to it you offer them a welcome which is warm but not bullying you you say we're over here and you can take all the time you need to discover whether you want to come towards us or not um but you don't have to join you don't have to perform doubt to doubting to doubting people i think yeah, thank you. Uh, the novel, Francis, um, and I'm 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 going to get my terms wrong here now because I'm just dragging it from memory. The novel begins in a great explosion of Amatol. Is that the correct word, Amatol? Which is, is the 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 explosive? Yes, absolutely. Um, it is an explosive uh, beginning, and Diana Barsham asks this: Do you see God? as a great explosion of powerful language. Well, I would do, wouldn't I, given given the linguistic bias of my of my job. Um, but whether that says anything decisive about God, any more than musicians would tend to see would tend to see God as great explosions of powerful music, or scientists would would tend to see God in in the kind of the extraordinary intricacy of physical law or mathematicians would see god in in pure pattern or people whose job is setting crossword puzzles would see god as as the answer to the ultimate cryptic clue i mean we're always projecting aren't we i mean yes but i think has to be has to be the answer the answer to 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 that also powerful language to slip into my own linguistic groove for a minute here is is all kinds of language it isn't only majestic language or or glorious language the power of language is also to do with its to do with its range and its and its fidelity to the the range of things language can show you can have explosions of powerful language which are about paying your taxes it's very difficult but david foster wallace showed it it could be done in his his last never completed novel because the internal revenue service of the united states was was quite a large challenge even even for him but but language is a language is a lens and the things that it shows kind of feed power through it and uh, i mean just to, to 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 riff on that a little um to <laughs> to dare to pay attention to the seemingly insignificant words the the prepositions the conjunctions yeah. i mean it's it's ne it's never about it's never just about the showy words i i'm sorry that's a reminder to me as a poet francis no in, in, absolutely um i think it's something that anybody who i mean like you and i both know from from working with language that the that the texture of it is immensely is immensely fiddly and quite resistant, and and the attention to to it to its its tiny words and the minute adjustments that get you nearer, but not quite all the way to where you can kind of see that you, you you're going to get, are part of a part of you know respect to respect to the medium, um, and that the power of it lies in the fact that it won't quite do what we tell it to. It will. It can be, it can be, it can be loved into shape, but it's never a perfect shape, and never just the shape that our will wants to give to it. Because 
language is shared between all the mouths that use it. It doesn't ever just belong to the person who that minute is trying to operate it. This is getting uh, extremely... It is. <laughs> Sorry, I know I'm so tempted. I'm so tempted to go down this this yeah. rabbit hole. Um, uh, but with time has almost caught us. I, I think it's only fair to take at least one more question from uh, the reader. So this is from Simon Stevenette, and uh, this was echoed by someone else. Thank you, Francis. Um, how do we share Christian hope and resurrection faith today? What does heaven mean, and what does it look? look like for you gosh i mean you know if you will write something about light perpetual and eternity oh. and time what, what you're going to get these questions i am aren't i S simon that's really quite a large question um um well as as innocent as doves and as wise as serpents i think um with as much wiliness as we can come up with in the means, but as scrupulously as we can with with the wiliness. Um, and by, oh, I don't know, um, by, by behaving as if we really think it's true, um, which means the, 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 the implications of it in the way we practice our professions and arts as well. I, 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 tend to say that I'm not a Christian writer, I'm a writer who happens to be a Christian, but that's too simple because, mm. because, because if you're a Christian, then your fundamental and underlying shape of what the world is like necessarily comes into your writing. But it doesn't have to be an active preaching process. It can also be a, a kind of witnessing fidelity to, 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 just to what things look like and to to the reality of of other people as for what heaven looks like to me um oh i think there's a lot of light in it um, <laughs> um, a, that, but but as ever i'm aware that it's extraordinarily difficult to imagine eternity from from within time um, I don't know what the city that 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 needs no sun or moon because it has the lamb is like. Um, I can see what it's like to imagine through words, but it's not words we're talking about there. And a kind of a, a, a blaze of light is 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 the best I can do. I would hope that there are joyful meetings there as well but who knows what what we're like in the light of eternity well very very fine we really are almost out of time very very final question comment uh, light perpetual begins in dust it ends in dust from dust to dust but it seems to me a work of profound generosity um a kind of anti ian McEwan's atonement in which you know you have a a novelist who gives an afterlife to people who the fictional novelist has used and abused and traduced. Is this telling for you as a person of faith that generosity and grace infuse your writing? Or do you not want to be limited by that? Um, I can't think of any circumstances in which generosity and grace wouldn't be a 
wouldn't be a good thing to have. But but I do not think that they are a possible goal of writing. You couldn't set out to have generosity and grace in in writing. They are a, they are if if you are lucky enough to get them, and grace, of course, is something you can't deserve. They are a side effect of 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 the way that you manage to pay attention. And the nice thing about being a writer is to bring in time. One last time is that there is a glorious lack of symmetry between how slowly and lengthily books are written and how fast they are consumed. So you are allowed to spend absolutely months stumbling about in your fallible way, trying to work out how to do something that the reader will 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 receive in a minute. Um, and then the reader may think that you're terribly wise and full of grace and generosity, but actually that's because you devoted September, October and November to desperately gleaning for tiny clues as you as you as you failed, failed and failed again. <laughs> well, thank you, Francis. Thank you um, for the gift that is this book, Light Perpetual. Thank you for the gift that is you and for sharing so warmly and generously. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.